Hello, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here with a flashback episode for you here in July of 2023. And uh, this week, we're going to flashback to something from way back in the archives from 2022. All right. So it isn't so far back in the archives. But this is something that I think a lot of people in the corporate report crowd missed because this was a question that was buried towards the end of my mass media Q&A that I did last year in the wake of the Media Matrix and my online mass media course that was released last year. I did a Q&A and answered several questions about media and um, media history and mass media, etc. Um, but in that Q&A, I, I saved the best for last. And I I do do this from time to time. I put the most interesting thing towards the end of a video. <laughs> it, it does mean that a lot fewer people see it, but I think it's a good way of checking who's paying attention. Anyway, this was such an important question and answer that I would like to, I think it bears repeating here. So I hope you will stick around for this one. I guarantee you this question about embedded reporting in the Gulf War probably goes in a direction you're not expecting. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, without further ado, here's this week's flashback. Hey there, James. This is Vinny, and I think you know which Vinny this is. In any case, uh, I, I've never really submitted a, a question to Corbett officially on the website, and I thought I'd do that now because I did watch your um, media course very closely, and it was really, honestly, mind-blowing, really great, and I learned so much from it. I have a question because you hadn't mentioned um, the practice of embedded reporting that began to occur during the Gulf War under Bush 1. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the practice of embedded reporting did in terms of shaping the people's perception of the Gulf War? Thanks for taking the time to answer. I really appreciate all the work you do. Take care. Thank you, Vinny. I very much appreciate the question, and it is very much in keeping with the spirit of the course, because as people who've taken the course know, uh, I do spend a lot of time going through that history, talking about news and the conception of even what news is, let alone how it is reported in the different manifestations of this mass media technology as that develops. It's very interesting to think about how our conception of what the news is develops in each different iteration of technology and in the different historical environments and contexts in which they're placed. So, yes, for the last few decades, this has been a feature of war reporting. Um, we noticed it really at in the first Gulf War, and then really with Afgan Afghanistan and Iraq in the past couple of decades, there's been an increase in the number of reporters being embedded, embedded journalism. So reporters riding along with military teams as they do their operations, and then reporting from the war scene in that way. And obviously, I would like to say that for the most part, I think the the corporate report audience will probably get why that is probably not a good idea, or at any rate is going to present a very skewed version of events. But if you would like a greater elaboration on that, uh, Patrick Coburn wrote a very, I think, thoughtful piece from back in 2010 on the dangers of embedded journalism that I will commend to your attention. Of course, I will link it in the show notes for today's episode, so I hope you will check it out and read it in its entirety. I think it is worth reading. It's got some interesting reflections from a reporter who has done real reporting in very dangerous war zones in a non-embedded way, reflecting on the nature of embedded journalism, but also, as I say, in a thoughtful way. He doesn't simply 
dismiss it. There is a recognition of the fact that doing genuine reporting and journalism in a war zone is inherently exceptionally difficult and dangerous, and there has to be some sort of um, some sort of accommodation for that in some way or other, and embedded journalism is one of the ways you could do that, right? Well, as uh, Coburn writes, many allegations against the system of embedding journalists, mainly with the American or British military, are unfair. Accompanying armies in the field is usually the only way of finding out what they are doing or think they are doing. Nor is there an obvious alternative way for correspondents to operate today. Given that Al-Qaeda and Taliban target foreign journalists as potential hostages, it is impossible to roam around Iraq or Afghanistan without extreme danger. But having made those concessions, uh, he does then go into the, the sorts of problems, not just the, the surface level, but the structural problems with embedding, noting, um, for example, it produces a skewed picture of events. Journalists cannot help reflecting to some degree the viewpoint of the soldiers they are accompanying. He talks about embedding, putting limitations on location and movement. You are going to be wherever the forces are, which means that the correspondent embedded with the American or British military units is liable to miss or misinterpret crucial stages in the conflict. Um, and then after a very lengthy discussion, he summarizes by saying, I used to get a certain amount of undeserved applause at book festivals by being introduced as a writer who has never been embedded, as if I had been abstaining from unnatural vice. Embedding obviously leads to bias, but many journalists are smart enough to rumble military propaganda and wishful thinking and not to regurgitate those in undiluted form. They know that Afghan villagers interviewed in front of Afghan police or U.S. soldiers are unlikely to say what they really think about either. Nevertheless, perhaps the most damaging effect of embedding is to soften the brutality of any military occupation and underplay hostile local response to it. Above all, the very fact of a correspondent being with an occupying army gives the impression that the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, countries which have endured 30 years of crisis and warfare, can be resolved by force. End quote. Uh, once again, please do read through that article. I think it is worth your attention if you're interested in this issue, but I think raising, raising the right kinds of questions, it isn't just a question of sort of skewing the report in favor of the military. It's that you only see what the military sees. You only understand the conflict in military terms. It it starts to affect not only the way you report, but what you report in the first place. And obviously, that ends up affecting the audience and their perception of what that war is about or how it is being waged or in what way, etc., etc. A point that was also made by Robert Fisk, uh, a veteran journalist who has spent a lot of time in the Middle East, who had his own opinions about embedded journalism, which he shared in a 2008 conversation about his work. This glomming across of journalism into power, um, I saw it very clearly actually in 1990 when American troops were gathering in Saudi Arabia for the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, to liberate Kuwait from Saddam. And the funny thing was, lots and lots of journalists were turning up, especially for America, Midwest guys who'd never been abroad before, in military costume. One guy turned up from actually Denver um, wearing shoes with camouflaged leaves on. <laughs> camouflaged with leaves. No, seriously, I mean, you, if you've seen a desert and even in a picture, you'll know that there aren't an awful lot of trees, you know, there. Um, but the funny thing was, too, that, you know, I go out in the, in the desert and, you know, I wasn't embedded at all. I just drive up to 
American troops or British troops, and they talked to me because they were lonely, mm -hmm. they were tired, they were wet, and they <coughs> had food poisoning all the mm -hmm. time. And I always bring piles of newspapers to give them and packets of cigarettes, and you know, and um, they'd talk and they were all writing. They were trying to write poetry. Mm -hmm. One guy in an Abrams tank had worked at a huge board game about flying between planets mm -hmm. and knowing when they could refuel their spaceship. It was, of course, about being a tank crewman in a desert, not knowing mm -hmm. if you get a resupply of fuel, mm -hmm. as I quickly realized. And these were quite literary people. Yeah. A British guy was trying to write poetry. It wasn't very good, but he was trying. And it suddenly dawned on me that all the soldiers wanted to be journalists and all the journalists wanted to be soldiers. <laughs> There's something there which was very dangerous getting loose. Now that is actually an exceptionally telling little anecdote, isn't it? About this whole phenomenon of media and its relationship to reality or lack thereof and how the two interact and interplay with each other. You've got these reporters dressing up in what they think, is, well, I'm a soldier now, I'm a soldier reporter, so I'm going to dress in my camo gear <laughs> for the desert, which has nothing to do with the actual terrain, um, because, again, they're going off of media representations of war. And then you've got the soldiers who want to be journalists or writers themselves because they don't want to be doing the actual drudgery of the work they're in. No, they want to be in media. <laughs> I mean, there's there really is some interesting crossing of the lines going on there, um, which I think starts to broach the much deeper issue that's going on here. Because yes, as I say, the Corbett Report crowd, uh, it's not exactly rocket science. I think we can all understand how embedded journalism and the practice thereof certainly does skew the representation of these different wars and thus skews our perception of them back at home. But it's actually much, much, much deeper than that, isn't it? And this is where we start to question that blurring of the line between reality and the virtual, the media representation of that reality, and how the two interact and interplay with each other. Here's, here's where things get really deep, and here's where I potentially lose the non-philosophically inclined, but I'll do it anyway. Here's a statement for you. The Gulf War did not take place. Now, I know what you're thinking. Probably something along these lines, right? Uh, CNN's Carl Rochelle is, is here with me, just came up. Uh, Carl, I know we can't be very specific given these restrictions, but uh, within those parameters, what did you see? Well, what I saw, I, I didn't see anything hit. I looked very, almost straight above us. There is a vapor trail coming from my right to my left, and there's a cloud of uh, something. It looks like it might have been an explosion of cloud. Uh, I'd say... It, it, Yes, of course, if you've been around in the conspiratainment space for long enough, you have undoubtedly seen the unedited behind-the-scenes footage and takes of Charles Jaco and his reporting from Saudi Arabia back in 1991 during Operation Desert Storm, or was it really from Saudi Arabia? And of course, that is the tenor of much of the misreporting in the conspiratainment space that has taken place around that particular footage and the other footage that has been released. Look, it's all fake. It was done on an Atlanta soundstage. It's a blue screen behind them with fake palm trees, and it's all uh, a, a show. It's it's not. None of it was real. None of it really happened. Well, 
well, maybe not. In fact, as aluminum theory demonstrates in a video uh, that was filmed at the Darhan International Hotel in Saudi Arabia uh, on the specially constructed plywood stage that they had set up there for the TV crews. You can see it from different angles and different shots um, from even different networks, etc. That was where they were broadcasting from. So uh, there was a sense of reality to it, but there's clearly also a sense of unreality to that footage, isn't there? And that's really where things start to get interesting. No, saying that the Gulf War did not take place or saying that that footage is fake is not saying that that didn't exist or it was all done on some soundstage in Atlanta. No, no, no. It's a deeper issue than that. It's calling into question the nature of war itself in the media saturation that we are steeped in these days and whether what took place in the Gulf in 1991, which really did take place, real people actually died, yes, but was that, was that war? Is that what we call that? And, and what does that mean in this day and age? Actually, a much, much more deeply philosophically interesting question than you might think. And if all of these questions about the virtual and the real and simulation and simulacrum start to evoke certain ideas, that's because you are good students who were paying attention in Lesson 3 when I was talking about Jean Baudrillard. And in case you weren't paying attention, let's get into it. Because, as you may or may not know, Jean Baudrillard wrote a series of essays that got collected and compiled in a book which was then published, The Gulf War Did Not Take Place, <laughs> which, of course, is the English translation available there on archive.org. The link will be in the show notes. So let me go in and borrow this book so we can at least read some of the excerpt together. Although, I must say, uh, as usual, Baudrillard exceptionally dense. So let's read a bit from the introduction, which makes things in a little bit clearer, more easily understandable language. Let's switch to one page view. So for people who don't know, again, this was a, select, a collection of essays that were published in Le Libération in early 1991. The first essay was published on January 4th, 1991. So after the UN resolution uh, had been approved, but before any bombing or anything had commenced, before Operation Desert Star Storm actually took place, that was published uh, on January 4th of 1991, and it was called The Gulf War Will Not Take Place. <laughs> A rather bold statement, which seemed to be proven untrue by subsequent events, right? Well, the Gulf War started, and then it was on CNN 24-7, so it must have been taking place, right? Well, in order to make sure that people understood what he was saying and that he, no, he was not going to retract what he said. He was going to double down on it. In early February, as the war was taking place on live TV so people could watch it, he wrote, The Gulf War, is it really taking place? <laughs> and then at the end of February, after it was all done and in the history books, he finished it up with, The Gulf War did not take place. <laughs> A very provocative and interesting concept. So let's take a look at it, or at least start to broach the question of what this really means. So again, reading from the introduction by the uh, translator here, uh, I think he puts it in perspective nicely. He says, at the time, as this was taking place in 1991, the TV Gulf War must have seemed to many viewers a perfect Baudrillardian simulacrum, a hyper-real scenario in which events lose their identity and signifiers fade into one another. 
Fascination and horror at the reality which seemed to unfold before our very eyes mingled with a pervasive sense of unreality as we recognized the elements of Hollywood's script which had preceded the real, the John Wayne language and bearing of the military spokesman, and the signifiers of past events faded into those of the present, the oil-soaked seabird recycled from the Exxon Valdez to warn of impending eco-disaster in the Gulf. Occasionally, the absurdity of the media's self-representation as purveyor of reality and immediacy broke through. In moments such as those when the CNN cameras crossed live to a group of reporters assembled somewhere in the Gulf, only to have them confess that they were also sitting around watching CNN in order to find out what was happening. Television news coverage appeared to have finally caught up with the logic of simulation. It was not the first time that images of war had appeared on TV screens, but it was the first time that they were relayed live from the battlefront. It was not the first occasion on which the military censored what could be reported, but it did involve a new level of military control of reportage and images. Military planners had clearly learnt a great deal since Vietnam. Procedures for controlling the media were developed and tested in the Falklands, Grenada, and P Panama. As a result, what we saw was, for the most part, a clean war with lots of pictures of weaponry, including the amazing footage from the nose cameras of smart bombs and relatively few images of human casualties, none from the Allied forces. In the words of one commentator, for the first time, the power to create a crisis merges with the power to direct the movie about it. Desert Storm was the first major global media crisis orchestration that made instant history. The Gulf War movie was instant history in the sense that the selected images which were broadcast worldwide provoked immediate responses and then became frozen into the accepted story of the war. High-tech weapons, ecological disaster, the liberation of Kuwait. In case anyone missed the first release, uh, CNN produced its own edited documentary, CNN War in the Gulf, which was shown on TV around the world. Within weeks of the end of hostilities, Time Warner produced a CD-ROM disc on Desert Storm, which included published text, unedited correspondence reports, photos, and maps in the form of a single hypertext document. In their publicity, they described this interactive media disc as a first draft of history. In the pre-session of Simulacra, Baudrillard took as an allegory of simulation the Borges story in which the cartographers of an empire draw up a map so detailed that it acts exactly covers the territory. Thanks to the geographical data collected by the U.S. Defense Mapping Agency, remote corners of the American empire, such as Kuwait, already existed on hard disk. Just as it marked a new level of military control over the public representation of com combat operations, so the Gulf War displayed a new level of uh, military deployment of simulation technology. Technological simulacra neither displace nor deter the violent reality of war. They have become an integral part of its operational procedures. Virtual environments are now incorporated into operational warplanes, filtering the real scene and presenting aircrew with a more readable world. The development of flight simulators provided an early example of the computer technology which allowed the boundaries between simulation and reality to become blurred. The images and information which furnish the material for exercises and war games became, become indistinguishable from what would be encountered in a real conflict. The same technology now allows the creation of simulated environments 
in which to train tra tank crews, and even the possibility of connected simulators in which virtual tank battles can be fought out. An article in the first issue of Wired, uh, first issue of Wired, recounts developments in the use of networked simulation machines as training devices. Current research aims to achieve what is called seamless manipulation, in which the seams between reality and virtuality will be deliberately blurred, and real tanks can engage simulator crews on real ter terrain, which is simultaneously virtual. Within months of the end of the war, army historians and simulation modelers had produced their own multimedia, fully interactive, network-capable capable digital simulation of one of the tank battles from the closing stages of the conflict. Armchair strategists can now fly over the virtual battlefield in the stealth vehicle, the so-called SimNet flying carpet, viewing the 3D virtual landscape from any angle during any moment of the battle. They can even change the parameters, give the Iraqis infrared targeting scopes, for instance, which they lacked at the time. This is virtual reality as a new way of knowledge, a new and terrible kind of transcendent military power. Now, the rest of that preface goes on in much greater detail to elaborate on Baudrillard's point and what it really means, because obviously it's a very provocative title, The Gulf War Did Not Take Place. Yes, it did. We all saw it. And of course, are you saying people didn't die? But there's a lot of very important points about real and hyper-real and the merging of those two and what the media event of the Gulf War actually means. Was that a war? And in what sense? Um, there's actually some incredibly interesting questions there, which the preface goes on to elaborate in greater detail. And then when you really are ready to get into the weeds, then you get into the Baudrillard text itself, which is characteristically dense and very thought-provoking, but it takes some time to work through. So um, I leave that uh, as, as a gem for you to discover. There's a lot in there, and uh, trust me, I will have more to say about some of the topics raised in this work uh, in the future, because I think they do go to the heart of the real questions that we start to move into in the increasingly simulated reality of increasingly mediated, the mediated world that we are stepping into in some cases, quite literally stepping into when we start to talk about the metaverse. So some very important questions, which, uh, Vinny, I'm sure you did not necessarily uh, expect when you opened this can of worms. But, uh, you know, it's been it's been at least a week since I've recommended a book to you, so I'll recommend this one. It's a, it's a short 90 pages. It's just a very, very, very dense 90 pages, so have fun with it. Um, but yes, uh, the idea that the Gulf War was a TV war is not exactly new. In fact, it's been handled in more straightforward and less philosophical ways by others talking about the Gulf War as a media event. There have been books published on it. Um, even, even Chomsky, straight-laced, I'm not a postmodernist Chomsky, um, has talked about, well, does what happened on TV there, does that actually, was that a war? My, my understanding of war involves two sides, uh, two e relatively equally matched sides shooting at each other on a battlefield, but that's, that's not what that, that's not what happened there in 1991. So even he would challenge the validity of the Gulf War as a war. But anyway, as I say, a lot more to say about that. And at the very least, yes, the nature of the embedded reporting and the live 24-7 coverage in the on the brand new CNN News Network. That, that Remember, that was a new idea at the time of 24-7 coverage of this unfolding news event. The Gulf War really made CNN into CNN. Um, 
so it as a TV event, hey, uh, there was entertainment to be had. Not only the Charles Jaco style entertainment, but also I'll throw in as an added bonus a little gem of Hitchens versus Heston um, on the Gulf War. Uh, at, and this was back in 1991 when before Hitchens became the Hitchens of the 2000s, where he was yay, you know, yay, yay, war. This was anti-war Hitchens versus pro-war Heston. Um, and includes some some nice exchanges, the type you would expect. It's it's not every day you get to debate Middle East policy with Moses himself, <laughs> as Hitchens remarks. <laughs> it's an interesting debate. And also, another reflection of something that I've had cause to reflect on from time to time and mentioned on the podcast before, it's another example of those times when you look at a piece of media that has preserved a moment in time from 30 years ago, a different media landscape, in which you could have a half-hour... I want to say fairly in-depth debate that goes into some degree of substance about the issues, um, more so than you would see today. Uh, that conversation could not happen on CNN today. It would be broken down into probably two or three minutes of, okay, what do you say? What do you say? All right, here's some flash graphics. Now let's move on. This seems like a relative fresh of breath, air, breath of fresh air from 1991, where people were allowed to talk for minutes at a time even. But that's actually pretty ironic when you look at, uh, say, Postman writing his TV critique in the 1980s, uh, talking about precisely this type of Hitchens versus Heston debate as being the absolute nadir of human civilization. This is stupid. This is not a debate. This is uh, a sign of the instant quick fix media culture that we're steeped in. Now, from our perspective in 2022, we can look back at that one from 1991 and go, wow, there's so much time and space for people to make points. It's It seems so unrushed. Wow, imagine that. So the, tevolu the, the revolution will not be televised, but the devolution will be televised. Go watch interviews of people from the 1950s, 1960s, man-on-the-street interviews with people speaking in coherent, multi-clausal sentences, grammatically correct, that actually make sense, versus the type of communication that passes for communication in 2022. There is a documented phenomenon that is happening there, and Media has a part to play in that. So anyway, there's a lot, a lot of different issues. I'm glad to have uh, had overwhelmingly positive feedback from the people who have taken this course so far. Um, again, if you have not done so, if you did enjoy the Media Matrix series, um, but have not looked at the course itself yet, I highly suggest it. I think it will be worth your time. There is a lot more information in the course than could be presented in the one hour of the documentary. So... Once again, it's a three-part course. Uh, it's broken into three lectures, and uh, the lectures are two and a half, two, two to two and a half hours each. So it adds up to about six and a half hours of lecture. Um, it includes the transcript of the entire lecture, hyperlinked transcript with links to all the sources of everything I talk about, of course, as always, as well as a study guide that includes recommended reading and includes summaries of the key points and takeaways. And you even get the PowerPoint slides as well, in case you want those um, as well. Lots of information, and I'm glad that people have gotten something out of it. I hope you will too. On that note, I think we're going to leave it there for today, um, and looking forward to continuing to ponder and talk about these ideas as I move forward with this media venture known as the Corbett Report into the future. Thank you for being here with me. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Media. It surrounds us. We live our lives in it and through it. 
we structure our lives around it. But it wasn't always this way. So how did we get here? And where is the media technology that increasingly governs our lives taking us? The Media Matrix. Watch the documentary for free at corporatereport.com media or purchase a copy on DVD at newworldnextweek.com.